Hey, it's Brandon. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Hey, I'm really excited about this particular episode. I was finding the right time to release it, and I am excited that this week you will hear from Lars Schmidt. He's the author of Redefining HR. When I first opened this book and started reading it and just started taking notes for this, I originally thought it was just going to be an HR book, you know, saying a lot of the same stuff. But I quickly realized how smart Lars is and how this is more of a business strategy book. It's about how do how does the HR department or professional of the future get a seat at the table? How do they help these businesses grow and maximize what people can bring to the organization? There is so much in this conversation, and I know you're going to be excited at the end of this and probably want to go out and get his book and reach out to him individually, and I'm sure he would welcome that. So I hope you enjoy this. If you loved what you heard, I'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn or I'm I'm on Instagram too. Feel free to direct message me that way. And of course, I always welcome a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and a written review. Enjoy this episode. Talk to you next week. Hey, Lars, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Brandon, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. All right. Your book is called Redefining HR, Transforming People, Teams to Drive Business Performance. And I'm probably going to ask you just the most basic question, but I I thought it would kick us off. What does redefining HR mean to you with where we're at right now? Oh, boy. So this is a three-hour show, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> I have to actually, I have to get much better at distilling my answer to that because uh, it took me a whole book to really uh, to answer that. Right. I think uh, you know, at its core, redefining HR is really uh, it's about uh, kind of drawing a line in the sand from legacy HR practices to modern HR practices, and and really illustrating where those shifts occur in terms of how we think about things like people analytics, recruiting, representation and diversity and inclusion, uh, employee experience, uh, right? And kind of these fundamental components of modern HR, learning, performance, all of those things, and mapping how legacy teams used to think about those things and kind of what had been HR dogma, if you will, around that, to how modern and progressive teams are thinking about those things and tackling that in a very different way. And so I think a lot of people, when they hear the title redefining HR, they think about it more from a, you know, a vernacular standpoint, right? Like moving from human resources to people ops or talent culture or whatever your, you know, department team might be And Yes, it can be that, but it's really more about the substance of how you think and what you deliver to the business, to your teams, and to each other. And I think what's really fascinating about the just the term redefining HR and the fact that you titled your book that way, it's that HR has evolved so much in probably the time that you've been in HR. And even before that, it's just like where we started and where we are now, it's going to continue evolving over time, uh, especially, and we're going to get into it later, with some of this information sharing in an open source fashion. It's 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 evolving so fast that you could probably have like a million volumes of this book 
like you just constantly keep updating it. Have you thought about like that? Like, oh, is this book going to be stale in like two years because it's just being redefined all the time? Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> but, no, but I mean, to, to be honest, though, I think uh, you know the field is evolving fast, and, I, and it's something that I do yeah. cover in the book a little bit. Is I think that the the way that we have gotten our information as an industry historically has been through these, you know, large organizations or societies or bodies of knowledge or whatever. And they're just not equipped to keep up with the the pace of change that's happening right now. And so I was uh, somewhat deliberate in the book to not spend too much time uh, drilling down on deeply specific practices, because you're right, that does change. But I also think that, you know, part of how we learn and develop and grow now is through iteration. So, you know, the, the idea right. of if I'm building, you know, pick your HR program, if I'm building a performance uh, program within my organization, uh, I don't want to emulate any one company. I want to find three or four companies that are all having success, but they're all doing it differently. And then I want to take all of those and then I want to put them through the own lens of, you know, my company, my culture, my location, my team, my employees, my budget, all those variables that uh, allow me to build within my own organization. So, you know, some of those practices, it's interesting. I think if you look at a lot of my focus on the book is examining uh, companies and teams that are how I, you know, I view them as at the leading edge of the field of HR. So the stuff that they're doing now is in some cases the stuff that the majority of the field won't be doing for five years from now, right? So, so it's kind of like you have to almost look at it as on a scale when you when you talk about is something going to be um, you know outdated, it, you know, for what's outdated at that leading group because they tend to, to iterate and evolve much more quickly uh, is still you know years ahead of where their peers in less progressive teams are. Yeah. So that's kind of a really interesting part. That that leading edge is innovating pretty rapidly. Uh, and, and that I think will continue. Like their their turnover in terms of thinking and practice and change and technology uh, you know happens in shorter cycles than those other departments, those other organizations. So I, I think that you know what they are doing and what's kind of mainstream for them now is an emerging practice a little further down the evolutionary curve. With some of those leading edge companies, I mean, the common organization is not even doing some of those really innovative practices from an HR perspective. But do you think for like the common organization, you know, small, medium-sized organization without the level of resources, let's say like a Netflix or a Google, do you think human resources still has like this image problem, this weird perception from business leaders like, oh, you know, it's the HR function. They're just, you know, they could just keep doing their policies and practices like over there in their in their corner in like truly a silo. What's your perspective on the image that HR is right now? You know, I think that the stigma can't be applied broadly to a company based on its size, uh, right? Like I've seen super innovative SMBs. I've seen super legacy and old school enterprise companies and Fortune 500 companies in some cases. So I think that that stigma uh, you know, can't necessarily be ascribed based on uh, you know your sector or your size or your industry. I think it's more of uh, you know, a lot of times it's it's based on how leadership views values and resources the function, uh, right? And so, you know, if you have a executive team and a CEO 
any company and their expectations for HR is low. They, they expect HR to deliver administrative value, you know, personnel value. That team's never going to be able to do great work because they're never going to be able to get beyond the constraints that that CEO places on them. Uh, you know, on the other side of that, you can also have a, a small company with a really progressive CEO who truly values building people-centric organizations, and they're going to resource it accordingly. They're going to bring in a great uh, chief people officer, head of people, CHRO. They're going to hire them early. Uh, they're going to give them the budget and the resources and the power to build the teams that they need that will make a difference for the business. So, you know, that, that stigma definitely exists. Uh, but yeah. I think it doesn't, uh, it certainly doesn't apply to the industry at large. Well, it's interesting. Even in your book, you highlighted this. And I remember listening to it on a podcast before with Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk. It's like, he's building this, this business, VaynerMedia. And he's saying like, we need to focus on empathy. And he brings in this business savvy. The name is escaping me. You'll know it off. T- Claude Silver. Yeah, like yep. what was her background and what was, you know, what was that whole thing? Are, do you think business owners are really and leaders are really starting to think that way? Uh, absolutely. I mean, Claude's story is really interesting. Like she was, uh, she worked for Gary. She did uh, uh, account management and, and creative and kind of project management. Um, not HR, like from not the advertising side. And then she decided <laughs> that, you know, she didn't want to do that anymore. And she left. And, uh, and Gary wooed her back with, you know, by creating that chief heart officer role for her. And it's like, this is your magic. Like, this is your special sauce. And I know this is what lights you up. So this is what you're going to do. You know, and he's, he's a pretty convincing guy. So uh, not that she needed convincing, but he, you know, he brought her back in that construct. And I think if you look at the, you know, I get into this in the book a little bit, but if you look at the CHRO job today, um, there are lots of you know very high profile examples of people from outside of HR moving into that function and running that function. And I think to me, the primary reason that you see that is because the business, the executive team, the board, they understand and value and demand the business savvy of a CHRO. Like you've got to understand the business. You've got to understand. You know, that's why I think the CHRO job is, you know, next to the CEO, probably the most difficult job in the C-suite because you have to be uh, so fluent in so many other areas. And then, uh, you know, and then you're, you're overseeing an organization's most volatile asset, which is your people. So, yeah, I think that we see that a lot. I think you also actually see uh, not just at the CHRO level, but, you know, the, HR, the field of HR used to be super insular. Right, people came in as associates and they worked their way up, and you know, and but you know, rarely did people come into the field of HR from other areas of the business. That's not the case anymore. Now that happens all the time, uh, and so I think that influx of new skills and experience and thinking and training into the field of HR is only accelerating uh, our growth and our development, which is uh, which is hugely exciting. What's interesting about the HR profession, you know, a lot of people in this industry are like, we need a seat at the table. And just with what you said right there, these CHROs are coming in, they are getting a seat at the table, but they didn't grow their career in a linear path from HR to CHRO. And I'm curious for those that are in an HR path and they want a linear path to get a seat at the table and have this CHRO position or chief people officer and really have a say at the table, what kind of career path do they need? Like, how do they go get that business acumen? 
you know, they're so focused on people, but maybe they're missing that component of the business side. What do they do in that case? Yeah. I mean, I think that they have to, they have to be curious and they have to be actively working to diversify their expertise early, right? Like that's a skill set that you need now. If you aspire to be that, uh, you need more than just subject matter mastery of your own discipline, right? You, you can't, uh, if I'm a recruiter and I want to be a CHRO, I need to be exposed to other areas of HR. I, I can't be a CHRO if all I've ever done is recruiting. And that's just within the field. I think I also need to understand the business and I understand P&L and, and I have to you know, understand all of those things. So it's interesting. I think you, you, know, you use the term that we use all the time in HR, seat at the table. You know, I think legacy HR leaders were, were so obsessed with the seat at the table. And this is another area I kind of explore in the book a little bit is they, they created these command and control structures where things you know, really needlessly had to flow through HR to happen. And they do that as a pathway to power. Uh, the reality is, is the opposite happened. Like it, it pissed employees off. It made them seem bureaucratic. It made them seem administrative. It made them seem power hungry. Like modern HR operators, they're not insecure. You know, they know the value they bring to the business. They don't feel they have anything to prove, at least above and beyond prove. Uh, and they create power. They create you know programs that are more about decentralizing and empower. They don't want to flow through HR unless it has to. They'd rather the business be equipped to be able to deal with that and and manage it on its own. So that that is, you know, again, to me, one of the big differences between you know, legacy HR and modern HR. Well, and you even wrote an article, I think, for Fast Company called The Best HR is Invisible. Is that sort of what you're describing with that? Is like, everything doesn't need to flow through HR. We're not going to over-engineer policies and procedures, but we are going to be like sort of like embedded throughout the whole organization, and we're there as a resource and to make others better. Like, is that how... Am I thinking about it the right way? Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you a super succinct answer. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, let's shift over real quick. So one of the first chapters you had in the book, um, just in terms of like the trends that are happening, is just the, the fact that employers are building inclusive companies, or at least people, the progressive employers, are really thinking about it. So if you are running an organization, uh, running HR, maybe or you're an owner of a, a smaller, medium-sized company, it's just not an inclusive company. It's not diverse. And you want to hit the reset button. Where are you starting when it comes to like building an inclusive company? Like, and I know that's it's that part's not necessarily in your book, but I'm just curious if you were to start all over and go somewhere and involve people into building an inclusive company, what are your first steps? Uh, my first steps to spend a lot of time with my black and brown employees, you know, my, my employees of color and, and really, talk to them, listen to them, understand what their reality is in the workplace, what challenges do they face, what institutional and embedded and you know systemic programs are in place that hinder their growth or their ability to feel like they belong. You know, I think that you have to you have to have a, a deep and honest introspective look at the organization and the business as a starting point, you know, the best place to get that feedback is from your employees of color. You've got to understand, and I think this is part of the broader challenge that HR faces right now. Is you know, I think based on the numbers, you know, HR is roughly seventy percent white um, from a practitioner standpoint, and much like in society, we're dealing with systemic racism and systemic issues, and they're systemic because they're engineered to produce uneven outcomes. Those same types of programs exist in our organizations, and because they are systemic oftentimes they're invisible 
to white employees because they're, you know, they're built to favor them. They're built to work until they recognize that and, and have that own kind of self-reflection. Well, that's on the privilege, the common. Yeah, exactly. Like they, 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 they won't know that. And so I think that's really kind of a starting point is like, there has to be a desire to educate yourself. And when I say you, I'm talking mostly to, you know, white and, and often white male leaders. You have to be willing to have that introspection and, and be willing to learn because until you do and until you are, it's going to be almost impossible for you to actually lead any meaningful change within your organization. So it kind of starts with yourself. And then I think you need to really listen to your black and brown employees and kind of understand what their experiences are uh, and design around that and design with them. You have to co-create what's going to work with them. You can't just say, okay, cool. I had a focus group. I took lots of notes. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to build this thing that, you know, I can't personally relate to necessarily. Well, that was where my head was going to when you first, you started with like, oh, I'm going to have a conversation with my black and brown employees. And I'm like, that's cool. Like, it'd be nice to know like what they need, where they feel like the hurdles are, all that. But in my mind, I'm like, where's the self-reflection within a, and, and are we even prepared to have those conversations? I think most employers and HR departments are probably not. But I like that in a perfect world, that would probably be the order of operation. We have some self-reflection, we're bought into it, and then have an open dialogue and get people what they want so they feel included. But I just don't know if most people are there yet, right? You know, so no, they're not. No, I think more are coming around, but it is, uh, it's a process. It was interesting. I had Box's uh, head of, uh, of inclusion, equity, and belonging. Tiffany on my podcast um, earlier last year, uh, it was late last year. And, you know, she's obviously has been in this space and working in this space and working to build equitable organizations for years. And um, she, she made this profound comment to me. I was kind of asking her about like, you know, what is her, as somebody who's been in this space and in this fight, you know, for years, how does she feel about kind of the groundswell of attention that happened in 2020 after George Floyd's murder and, you know, with the, the, the protests and the rise of conversations around Black Lives Matter. And um, she made this interesting distinction between moments and movements, right? And that last year was a moment, and it was a positive moment, and there's things to be built on, but it's part of a broader movement, and the movement is generational. And I just found that really profound, particularly as somebody who I think, uh, you know, if I'm honest, I probably was being much more personally introspective last year than I have ever been as it relates to, you know, racism and privilege and anti-racism. And so for me to kind of, it was just a very kind of calibrating conversation for me to have uh, as somebody who, you know, with a lot of enthusiasm and interest and, uh, and awareness that, you know, maybe hadn't always been there, um, you know, kind of calibrating that with somebody who's been in this for a very long time. And, uh, and kind of, you know, checking that. And, and really, for me, it made me double down on, you know, knowing that this is a long-term commitment that we have to be vocal and we have to be, uh, you know, really kind of hold our peers and our industry to account for their role in building more inclusive uh, and representative organizations. That is so profound. The, the moment and the movement thing. I just like, I'm just thinking back in this last year too. And we're just sort of, you know, as white males, we're just sort of like status quo, just going about our day. And then you have this moment that happens and it's horrific and sparks a movement 
people are starting to talk about it. And then you have this like internal reflection of like, what could I be doing differently? Like I, I know so little about this and what people are struggling with. And I just wanted to make a comment on that. I thought that was amazing the way you put it. Okay, I'm going to shift over. We could talk about inclusion all day long, honestly, like probably another podcast for that. But I want there's so many other areas I want to touch on. So this idea of HR open source it is so new to me. In fact, when I was reading uh, your book, I immediately sent that website to several of my colleagues. I'm like, you've got to check this out. Like, so often has HR been in these silos, not sharing information, like as you said earlier, having everything run through that department. But this unlocks a whole different spectrum of HR. For listeners who don't understand what this whole idea of open source is from an HR perspective, define that for us. And then maybe if you would, give an example of how, let's say, the whole COVID-19 kind of movement to remote work, how, how the HR open source might help a situation like that. Yeah, I mean, so I'll kind of start with the basics. You know, open source as a practice is something that was, uh, you know, born from software development. So it was basically the idea behind it was, is if you write a piece of code that does X, uh, you know, if you could upload that to a common platform and allow anybody to take that code so they don't have to write, build that code from scratch, uh, and now everybody has access to it. And in doing so, they're able to make the code in some cases faster, more efficient, more impactful, and then they upload their version of code. You know, you have this collective intellect of capabilities designing code. And I think most, you know, most modern platforms on the web are built on open source technologies now. So that's, you know, the impact in software is transformative. And so my co-founder, uh, Ambrosia Vitesi, who is uh, you know an operating partner at Operator Collective now and used to run HR at Hootsuite. Uh, you know we were having a conversation and we you know we were like, what if we tried to take that principle and, and bring it into HR, where we created a platform and encouraged people to give away their uh, their templates, their toolkits, case studies, practices, etc. And it was all available for free, so anybody around the world could contribute, they could take from it, they could access it, they could they could make things better. You know, could that have a similar impact? And so that was really where that was born. Uh, and it's, you know, over the last seven years, it's grown to over you know, 10,000 members around the world. Uh, I'm not directly involved in it anymore. So two years ago, I turned that over to an operating board. Um, they're now driving it. It's now a formal not-for-profit. But yeah, so I think that that, that kind of came... Uh, as HR, which historically wasn't known as a function to be great at sharing and uh, and kind of working openly, right? I think we had much more of a siloed reputation. That began to shift. And I think we, we certainly saw that last year when COVID hit. And you know now as an industry, we're all experiencing something that nothing of us have gone through before. There were no playbooks for like, how do you deal with the global pandemic? It's literally shutting the world down in a matter of weeks. Especially, yeah, it's a matter of weeks. Like you had to all of a sudden like figure out how to make a remote work thing happen. And there's obviously policies and procedures that you need to follow. And it's like having a resource like this where you can just go grab some of that stuff and find a best practice. That's incredible. Yeah. So I think that that, uh, to me, that's probably one of the most transformative shifts from legacy HR to modern HR is the fact that we do away from silos and we've embraced open source. And in doing so, it's going to accelerate our capabilities, our learning, uh, our impact. And it gets us out of that bullshit mantra of war for talent where we're all competing with each other. And it's like, it makes us realize like it's not zero sum. Like we can, 
we can actually all win. And yes. we can, by sharing this, you know, there isn't one winner and a bunch of losers. We can all win. We can all, you know, better serve our organizations and each other. And so, yeah, that's, to me, that's, that's a, a linchpin of the, the evolution from legacy HR to modern HR. Yep. Uh, I love the point you're making about the, it's not a zero sum game. I mean, that's why I named this podcast Transform Your Workplace because quite frankly, I want to bring on people that want to make workplaces better. And yeah, forget this war for talent stuff. What if we make all of our workplaces better? We're more productive as a society. People are happier and we're producing better results than ever before. I mean, that to me is why you would bring a tool like this HR open source to to the general public and make it free. I don't know what, what the model is. How do you guys stay open, uh, whether it's donations or whatnot, but to me, it makes everybody better. Yeah. So yeah, it's not, uh, there's, there's no cost, uh, for community members. So I think we, when I was running it, we had a sponsorship model, but the sponsorship came, uh, from HR tech. Okay. So companies like, uh, you know, greenhouse and the muse and universal and others, um, became a sponsor and they basically that, uh, that funded the operations, but we actually, Ambrosia and I self-funded for the first two years, we put our own money into it. Uh, to build it because it was just, you know, we just believed in the idea. We, we knew that it would be something that yeah. could make a difference. And I think we were much more impact driven than financially driven. Here's a quote that I think uh, illustrates the time we're in right now. The quote says, it's never been easier to find talent. It's never been harder to cut through the noise and get their attention, end quote. And you know, right now for recruiters, they're like, they got the best tools in the world right now to find talent but my God, there's so much information out there and it's so hard to stand out. What's your perspective on just the world of recruiting and employer branding right now? Um, <laughs> can I use that quote? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, look, I think, uh, I, I think that quote nails it. I mean, it's, uh, we all have the same tools. Uh, everybody, for the most part, has some level of a digital footprint. So everybody's findable. You know, being able to get people's attention and I don't just mean from a recruiting perspective, like we're, we're bombarded with pings and alerts and notifications and content and all kinds of stuff uh, all day, every day, constantly. And so you're not just competing with other recruiters and crafting messages, you're competing for attention with all of that. Again, it's easy to find people. It's really hard to capture their attention. And so I think in terms of what that means for employer branding, you know, you've got to be able to cut through the BS and, and articulate a pretty clear value prop uh, of why somebody would want to work for your organization. And, and you know, as much as possible, it's got to be segmented. So like the drivers of why, uh, of what a software engineer wants from work are going to be different than what a designer wants, which will be different than what an accountant wants, which will be different from what a working father wants, you know, or a working mother or wants. So, you know, you have to be able to, to take into account, you know, all of these different factors when developing your, your outreach strategy. And it makes it tough. And, you know, now you have the whole additional layer on of, you know, remote plans and where you work and how work gets done. I mean, all of that is an added dynamic that you have to, to navigate now. Yeah. Well, it's interesting on that point. So like I just opened up a position on my marketing team uh, last week and we're pretty regional company. So we usually recruit within our area. But I mean, I got a lot of applications within the first couple of days and over half of them were 
outside of the state. You know, I'm in Oregon and most of these are coming from the East Coast. I'm like, I've never had this before. This whole remote work thing, like the whole playbook's thrown out the window. It's bizarre. Like recruiting is just, in a lot of ways, it's easier. In a lot of ways, it's more challenging. But it unlocks a whole different group of people you never had before. How do you think AI is going to be changing recruiting in the future? There's so much data and all these tools that we're using. Do you think it's going to get... Like we're going to have more precision in terms of how we're recruiting or do you think it's going to be more biased and bring up a lot of issues related to like diversity and inclusion? So I'll, I'll ask that question. I'll qualify by saying, I don't know. <laughs> I know. Uh, what, I, what I mean by that is that anybody who's going to tell you that they can give you an accurate prediction uh, is lying or they're selling you something. Uh, you know, I'm not doing that. I, I think I'm bullish on the potential of AI in recruiting, primarily in the use case of using AI to surface candidates that humans wouldn't surface. Meaning, I think if you look at traditional recruiting, and I don't mean traditional like back in the day, like this is still how we do it now. It's like you have a, oftentimes a poorly written job description. Uh, you have oftentimes a poorly written resume. Uh, the resume is more of a chronological listing of what somebody has done. Uh, the job description is an aspirational document of what you will be doing. And then you have humans, you know, reviewing the connection between those things. And then you also have hiring managers who tend to look for people who have seen and done every possible thing that they might need that person to have seen and done so that in their mind they can be, they can, you know, quote unquote, hit the ground running. When AI has the ability to find patterns in work and factor in things like aspirations and what people want to be doing, not necessarily just what they've done. And you can find patterns in that to maybe make connections that on paper, if you're just looking at a resume, you're like, why would that person be qualified for this job? Like, why would I talk to that person? And today you wouldn't as a recruiter. I think when, when you have that ability, and we don't yet, but when we have that ability that to me uh, can fundamentally change how recruiting happens because we're able to broaden the pool in ways that, you know, humans with our kind of bias and our pattern matching in terms of resumes and job descriptions just can't do. So I'm bullish on the potential in that context. I think we're still years away from it. But uh, that, if, if I had to bet on an aspect of AI fundamentally changing and impacting, uh, you know, HR and recruiting, that would be an area that, uh, that I'd be bullish on. A few times throughout your book, you said this point, and I, I really want to know why you think this, but what's the problem with the term culture fit? I mean, this plays into recruiting, but it also just goes into like, okay, this is the culture we want to create, the experience we want to create. But why is that not such a great term? Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible term. Uh, and I think primarily, so you have to separate a couple of things. I think a lot of people hear how I react to that and they're like, what, culture isn't important? And I'm, I said, I'm not talking about culture. I'm talking about the term culture fit. It's a different thing. I think when you talk about culture fit, that term, I think, has become, and in not all cases, but in many cases, you know, a weaponized method of excluding people. I I can't relate to this person. We didn't go to the same school. We didn't, you know, didn't grow up in the same area. We don't like the same music. We, uh, you know, all of these things that I'm using to, uh, you know, misalign you with my expectation, my personal expectation of what this job should be or what what this company is. Um, so I think companies became overly reliant on, you know, they glamorized this idea of culture fit, but then they weaponized it and they basically 
would allow it as a term, like, why are you passing out this candidate? Oh, they're not a good culture. And they would allow that to be the answer. And I mean, my, my point is, A, I don't think companies should allow that, period. But if they do, then I think, you know, just stating you're going to pass on a candidate because they're not a good culture fit is not an acceptable answer. What do you mean by that? Right? There has to be, like, tell me specifically what you mean by that. And if they can, if they're just giving you vague generalities, well, I don't know, I just didn't connect with them. They just didn't, no, I'm sorry. That's not exactly Well, you want them to be exactly like you. You want to create, like, this homogenous culture where everybody thinks and acts the same. Like, that's... Right. That's unacceptable. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, the, the old adage of like, oh, but I, but I want to go get a beer with this person, right? Like you hear that all the time. Like, no, that's not how you make hiring decisions. Like that's how, you know, it's not about like, there's, there's value in having actual divergent perspectives and, and views and approaches within the organization. You know, and again, there's lots of cases made around diversity broadly, um, but I'm saying specifically, like if you have a monoculture you're going to have a mono product and your products could have all kinds of blind spots and all kinds of gaps um, because your team can't see it that way. I'm going to touch on a couple more things and I'll let you go. Cause I know I kept you a little bit longer than I probably should have. There's one stat that just completely caught my eye and I, it probably defines where HR is going in, in a lot of respects. So you wrote that since 2015, there's been a 240% increase in HR professionals having an employee experience in their title in some way. So why, why the shift? You know, I think a lot of uh, HR teams are broadening their view of what HR can do and what their focus is. And I think that, you know, again, this comes back to kind of a contrast between legacy and modern. I think legacy HR teams, they look more at like the environmental aspects of employee experience, you know, or they looked at, you know, benefits from a traditional sense. And they didn't even think about the term employee experience. It was like, you know, comp and benefits and, uh, you know, just th- things like that. I think now, you know, there's some teams, you know, Mark Levy, who's in the pioneers of employee experience, he uses that to actually, doesn't use HR, he uses employee experience to talk about the whole function. Uh, and then you have other other organizations that actually use that as a function within the broader HR team. But it's, it's more thinking about all of the different touch points of your employees, like the end-to-end employee experience and how you can support that in a a deliberate and conscious way. So I think, again, to me, that number trends with just the evolution of the field of HR and progressive thinking in HR. And so as more progressive teams, uh, as you begin to see more of those teams, you know, clearly you would see an an equal indicator of those types of roles uh, also rising. Those poor HR people, when COVID happened, the ones that are that care about the employee experience are probably like, shit, now we got to like totally redefine the employee experience. How do you think some people are maintaining that a good employee experience in this weird, weird... Yeah, thing? well, I would say either that or they were like, hell yeah, I'm going to get to build some new stuff that didn't exist before. That's, that's a good point. I mean, I think that, uh, look, it's very... I mean, in every way you know, COVID caught the vast majority of us flat-footed. And we all had to adapt to the circumstances as they happened. So it was very much an exercise and um, reactive strategy. Uh, I think that in terms of like what companies are doing, every company's different and they're all having different approaches. I think the one consistent theme that I see them all doing a lot more of is actually listening to their employees. You know, and from an employee experience standpoint, it's really more about co-creation. 
it's about listening and understanding. Like, what do you need? Like, what, what do you, so, you know, you're working from home now. You didn't expect to be doing that. Maybe you have kids at home. Maybe you have elder parents at home. Maybe you have uh, anxiety around uh, the virus. You know, maybe you have lots of things. I think, you know, the challenge is every individual employee is experiencing this on their individual terms. And that's really hard to design for from an employee experience standpoint. So what you've got to do is listen Leading companies are finding ways to personalize, to some extent, how they adapt their employee experience, um, you know, offering so they can. It's not one size fits all because that's not how your employees are experiencing this. So I, I think that, that that flexibility, certainly that ability to listen, uh, and that desire to kind of you know co-create solutions with them as opposed to to them, I, I think that's the biggest difference. Performance management's changed a lot, I'd say, over the last probably even five years. We, I think we've been talking about changing it for forever. And I think some of these bigger companies and, and the way they're doing performance management is really causing a lot of us to say like, okay, well, maybe we're not managing as well as we could. And you're discussing something in your book that I think is really important. And you're saying it's going agile. What does that mean in, in the context of performance management? And maybe give us a couple little examples of how it's agile. So when I use agile to talk about performance, uh, I talk about not being like an annual yeah, yeah. process. Ha- so having more, whether it's you know quarterly, monthly, weekly in some cases, heavier weight, lighter weight. Um, the, the idea is moving away from that uh, annual retroactive approach that has been long been, you know, the kind of core way that HR looked at performance, right? That's just not valuable anymore. It's not realistic. It doesn't align with employee tenure and expectations and kind of demands and needs for ongoing and regular feedback. So that to me is, is what that kind of shift to Agile. It, it's basing your programs more on ongoing discussions than annual retrospectives. And, you know, I, I talk in the book a little bit about um, Survey Monkey specifically, you know, Becky Cantieri, their CTO, led them through a shift from annual to quarterly uh, and shared kind of the impact that had and kind of how they did that. And I think that that is, you know, a couple of years ago, that was the exception. I think it's less of the exception now. I think more and more companies are moving away from those annual programs, but I certainly encourage them to do so because I don't, I don't think an annual retrospective approach to performance just fits with how people work today. My guest today has been Lars Schmidt. He's the author of Redefining HR, Transforming People, Teams to Drive Business Performance. Uh, Lars, this has been a fun discussion. I, I tell you, my brain is on fire in a, in a really good way. I mean, like just sparking so many ideas and just keep wanting to have the conversation. It's just, it's great, great work. I uh, appreciate what you're doing out there in the industry. Where can people learn more about you and follow you? Of course, you got your own podcast. Uh, maybe point people to wherever they can find you. Yeah, I'll give uh, your listeners two hubs. Um, you know, my, my work hub is amplifytalent.com. So that's my company where I do uh, HR consulting. A lot of it, a lot with kind of the areas I explore in the book, uh, as well as HR executive search. And then the book and podcast can be found at redefininghr.com. And uh, you've got links there uh, through those channels, all my social platforms and and everything else. So I'm uh, I'm, uh, obnoxiously findable online. So, uh, but you could could use those two two, uh, platforms as your hubs to, uh, to engage with me wherever. Thanks, Lars. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Brandon.